Welcome to Let's Be Better, a podcast where we have the hard conversations about politics, minority communities, and our world at large. September 15th through October 15th is National Hispanic Heritage Month. In honor of all the amazing Hispanic and Latinx people who have contributed to our country, I'll spend the rest of this time paying tribute to the rich and beautiful community of the Hispanic and Latino Americans. In today's episode of Let's Unpack, we'll be talking about civil rights activist Sylvia Mendez and the landmark court case Mendez versus Westminster, featuring special guest Emily. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I want to start out by taking time to clarify a few terms that I personally always get confused and I'm working on improving. So the term Hispanic refers to a person who is from or descendant of someone who is from a Spanish-speaking country. And then Latino, Latina, or Latinx refers to somebody who is from or descendant from a country in Latin America. So, for example, somebody who is Mexican would be both Hispanic and Latinx because they are from a Spanish-speaking Latin American country, which is Mexico. But somebody from the Dominican Republic or DR would only be Hispanic because they do speak Spanish, but the island is located in the Caribbean, not Latin America. So therefore, they wouldn't be Latinx. And it is it is Latinx, not Latinx? Yes, because I did think it was Latinx. And then I made a Facebook post about it and like tagged some of my um, Latinx friends, and they said the consensus is Latinx. Okay, good. Good to know. We always want to be correct. Right. And then they said there is like a, a transition in the community um, of like a, a slightly different pronunciation, but the general consensus from my Facebook post was Latinx. Okay, good, good. Um, and then so conversely from the Dominican Republic, Brazil would be a Latinx country because it's located in Latin America. But since the official language is Portuguese and not Spanish, it's not considered a Hispanic nation. Okay, okay. I'm getting the hang of it now. <laughs> yeah, so Hispanic, since it has Spanish in it, they that means they speak Spanish. And then Latino, Latina, Latinx, it has the word Latin in it. They're from Latin America. Okay. So there, there is, you know, sometimes a, a difference. And then something else I didn't know, it doesn't uh, really apply in this article, but... Uh, or in our story today, but the term Spanish refers to somebody who is from or descendant from somebody who's from Spain. And then so Latina.com says, although Spanish is, is a language, it is also a nationality. So just because someone speaks this language, it doesn't mean that they are from this European country. Okay. So like, Yeah, because I know that I personally, because I didn't know the difference between Hispanic and Latin, like Latinx, I just called everybody Spanish. And then through doing this research, I found out that that's also technically not correct unless that person is from Spain. Whoops, apologizing to all my (laughs) Latinx (laughs) friends that I've been calling Spanish for all these years. They were so nice not to correct me. Yeah, me too. Me too. And that's why I wanted to talk about it because I literally didn't know the difference between any of them. And then like, because we're like white privileged people, like for us, it didn't matter. I mean, like it matters because we're like considerate people, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yes. (laughs) 
but it had no effect on us right. if we pronounced it wrong. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then I also recently learned the difference between ethnicity and race, thanks to my friend Maddie for pointing this out to me on Facebook. Um, and according to National Geographic, race is usually associated with biology and linked with physical characteristics, such as skin color or hair texture, whereas ethnicity is linked with cultural expression or identification. So for me personally, I am racially part Italian because I have dark thick hair and like all of undertones in my skin, but I'm not ethnically Italian because I don't really express my culture. I don't participate in any Italian traditions, speak Italian, anything like that. Another point about like the difference between ethnicity and race would be if there's like a white person who lives in Mexico, they celebrate Mexican holidays, cook traditional Mexican meals, lives and participates in Mexican culture, all that, they could be considered ethnically Mexican, but not racially Mexican. And I think that comes into place a lot, too, with European countries and stuff. Like, somebody can be from Germany and consider themselves German, but not be, like, genetically German. Okay, let me drink some water, and then we'll get into it. So, we start in 1940s Orange County, California. Though we often associate this time period with World War II and great American heroes, a different type of war was being waged at home here in the States. Many Mexicans traveled to the United States and specifically to California to work in citrus groves. With the increase in brown people also came the increase in discrimination. At the time, segregation in the southwestern United States was common practice in all aspects of life. Unlike Jim Crow laws of the southeastern part of the country, where segregation was enforced by law, many communities in the southwest came up with their own unofficial ways to discriminate against Mexican Americans and other Hispanic people. Most notably, and this blew my mind when I read it, in California, swimming pools were segregated. Mexicans could only swim on Mondays, and they were called Mexican Mondays, and then after the Mexican patrons left the pool at the end of the day, the staff would completely drain it and sanitize it so that way the next day white patrons what? didn't have to swim in the dirty water that the Mexicans left. And yet, you know those white patrons showed up for Taco Tuesday. <laughs> Absolutely. We love to, uh, to love cultures when it benefits us. Mm -hmm. uh, restaurants also had signs that said no dogs, no Mexicans, and many Mexicans weren't allowed to even own property. Were Mexicans, were they considered to be the same as dogs? Is that the relevance of that sign? I think so. I think that's the implication. Again, like in, in the Southwest, they didn't have actual laws that discriminated against Mexicans. So people would like put up their own signs and make their own rules for the establishment. Do it the old fashioned way. Right. The gross way. Uh, the yeah. Orange County way. <laughs> yeah. And so separate but equal was being practiced all over the uh, United States. That's crazy. I've only ever heard that in terms to you know, the African-American community, I had no idea they were doing it at the same time to the Spanish community right. and the Mexican community. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And then another thing to note is like, 
At this time, it was a lot easier to emigrate to the United States. So a lot of people legally were coming up from Mexico just straight to California and were able to work their way to citizenship. It's not like today where basically if you're an immigrant, you are either already like legalized or you're an illegal alien. It wasn't as black and white then either. So there were like a lot of people like straight from Mexico that didn't speak very good English, things like that, that I think perpetuated these like racist stereotypes. My God. Or the stereotypes that people thought were racist, I should say. So Gonzalo Mendez was born in Mexico in 1913. This is one of those examples I was talking about. But he moved to the States with his family in 1919. In 1943, at the age of 30, Gonzalo was a naturalized citizen, a successful vegetable farmer, and the father of a beautiful family. He and his wife Felicitas had three children together at the time, Silvia, who we'll talk a lot about more later, Gonzalo Jr., and Jerome. They had a fourth child many years later named Sandra, but at the time of this story, she wasn't born yet. So she's not relevant yet. (laughs) Not yet. It's actually funny because she, in like one of the documentaries that I watched about it, she was like flipping through the back of a history book and saw the case Mendez versus Westminster. And then like she was like, oh, that's my last name. And then she like read on it and it had like all her siblings names and her parents names. And she like brought it up to her mom and she was like, what is this? Why are all of you in a book? And her mom was like, oh, yeah, we did that. (laughs) We just never told you. Oh, we forgot about that time we shaped American education. Right, right. And that's like another big part of this story is that it's forgotten and it doesn't get like the attention that it deserves, partly because it involves Mexicans. And then, you know, partly- And it was overshadowed by Brown versus Board, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this was a, a precursor to Brown versus Board. Like, obviously, Brown versus Board is, like, extremely important and influential. But that was, like, on a national scale, well, whereas this was only on a local, like, Californian scale. So it got overlooked and not talked about. In the documentary, Mendez versus Westminster, For All the Children, uh, Sylvia describes the daughter, describes a proposal brought to her father. She says, my father always wanted to be a farmer. He wanted to be the boss, knowing that he had always been the grape picker and the citrus picker. So during the war, something horrible happened. The Japanese were put in internment camps and his banker told my father, Gonzalo, you always wanted to be the boss. So why don't you lease the land from the Minomitsos? They're in an internment camp, but they want to lease their land. That way they won't lose it. So he went and he arranged with the Minomitsos. I remember we went to the camp and they signed the papers and we got the ranch. And so after that, the Mendez family packed up and moved to the ranch in Westminster. That's crazy. Yeah. So again, like you're talking about at this time, like we imagine Jim Crow as one thing. And then now we're learning about like the racism against like Hispanics is another thing. And then there's also at the same time going on with the racism against Japanese Americans because of World War II. Yeah. And a lot of people didn't know that they were put in the internment camps. I mean, people are like, they, they think about the Holocaust. They're like, that would never happen in America. I'm like, it did. I mean, not on the same level, of course, but we definitely discriminated against people and threw them in labor camps. So 
Yeah, absolutely. And we glaze over that, I think, a lot in history classes, if it's even taught at all. And I think a lot of people forget about it. But like all of these like massive like discrimination tactics were all going on at the same time against, you know, basically everybody that's not white. And, you know, at this point, and these people are still alive. Right. You know, this was not that long ago. George Takai was in one of the internment camps. Like He was? For four years, yes. He talks about it all the time. Um, If you follow his Facebook and his Twitter, I mean, it's a real point of contention for him. And he talks about, you know, the children in cages that they're keeping at the borders and stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. he's like, we want to act like that's not a part of America, but I experienced that part of America. And that's why... um, Plugging a show that I love here really quick. Sorry. Um, If you have Hulu, you can watch this incredible show called The Terror. Okay. And every season is a different historical thing. Like the first one, the first season is the British Arctic exploration where one of their ships uh, went to the Arctic and then never came back. And so the show kind of imagines what might have happened to those people. And there's a little supernatural element to it that I won't reveal. Mm. Um, But the second season of The Terror takes place in the Japanese internment camps. And George Takai is one of the main characters. And he, you know, felt that it was very important for him. And he was a consultant on the show because he did, I mean, he had lived through it. So he really helped them to make it realistic, of course, except for the supernatural entity that is in every season. Right, right. (laughs) In the documentary that I watched, there's this family, the Minomitsos, the Japanese family, had daughters that were the same age as the Mendez children. And they're all talking about like their experience a little bit in the interview, uh, in the documentary. And I mean, yeah, you're right. These people are still alive. And these racist people, too. Yep. Passing down their racism from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. So essentially, the Mendezes took on the Minomitsos' ranch while they were in an internment camp. So they moved, and then that kind of, uh, when the school year came around, the kids went, the Mendez children, went with their aunt Sally and her children to enroll in their district's school, which was 17th Street Elementary. This is also the school that Gonzalo went to growing up. And then there, the discrimination laws, like the unofficial ones, were put in place after Gonzalo had, like, grown up. So he was allowed to go to this literal same school when he was a child. Mm. Um, And then we'll learn what happens to his kids in, like, two sentences. Um, So upon arrival, (laughs) Sally was told that her children, who had white-sounding last names and lighter skin, could enroll, but that the Mendez children could not because they had dark skin and hair yeah exactly and like the the worst part is that sally is and her children they're all they're mexican too but it's literally just based on the way they look and their last name because she married like a french guy they're white passing that's another big cultural Mm -hmm. discussion for a later time definitely plays a part in this story so because of that Sally refused to enroll her own children if her nieces and nephews could not also enroll. So oh, then she, I know, she's so sweet. So she was like fuming and left the school and then went 
back to the Mendez home and told her brother Gonzalo about the encounter. Gonzalo told her that it was no problem, he'd just talk to the principal. So the next day, Gonzalo went to the principal, who told him that the children couldn't enroll because they were Mexican, because the schools in Westminster were segregated, and that Mexican kids couldn't go to the school with the white kids. So where were they supposed to go? To the Mexican school, which I'll talk about in just a second. So the next day, Gonzalo went to the school board, where he was told the same thing. Then he went to the superintendent and was told that his children had to go to the Mexican school because, quote, the trouble with you Mexican folks, you are dirty. You don't know that a lot of Mexicans have their, they got bugs in their hair and are not too clean behind the ears. So, yep. And there's testimony. I have, like, quotes later um, about, like, the the actual testimony of some of like the superintendent and it's just like blatant racism. So yeah, they say that the kids have to go to the Mexican school. Now this Mexican school was a two room wooden shack that was on a dirt lot right next to a cow pasture that had an electric fence. Why am I not surprised? Right, exactly. Sylvia talks about how they had to eat lunch outside during lunch and that the flies from the farm would swarm around them and their food. But on the white side of town, the 17th Street School, where they were trying to go, which is their district, by the way, had a manicured lawn, rows of palm trees, and a playground, which young Sylvia desperately wanted to play on. So... Just major, major, like, difference. Again, I'm not even surprised. Just a quick little fun fact here from uh, someone who has a cosmetology degree. Uh, The bugs in your hair, lice, are actually attracted to clean hair. Right. Yeah. I had lice when I was a kid, and I remember learning about that. Yeah. And, I I mean, I have a very good friend uh, Jasmine, who is black, and she was like, that is a, a white kid thing, lice. Like, that does not happen. <laughs> you know, and, but it's it's true. So really, those kids over on 17th Street were way more likely to get lice. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And like the other thing too, and maybe you can talk about this more with your cosmetology experience, but uh, I know that white people, we wash our hair a lot more so than frequently. like- yeah, compared to black people, and I don't really know about, like, Hispanic hair care, but I'm assuming it's probably somewhere in the middle. But that probably has to, like, contribute to the lice factor as well, right? It does, and the fact that, um, I don't know if you noticed, but a lot of people of color, their hair looks so much healthier than ours, and that's a big reason, and Part of it is because we're, we as white people have a tendency to clean our hair way more than we need to. I would say wash your hair twice a week. Once a yep, week, that's if you, what I do. you get away with it. And you do have to train your hair to do that because when we wash our hair frequently, we are stripping the natural oils. That's what shampoo does. But because we're doing that more often than we need to, the hair creates more and more oil to try to make up for it because it's going, oh no, where's all my oil? So what you need to be doing is shampooing and then dry shampooing in between. 
uh, three to four days at a time and comb out your dry shampoo, please. At the end of the night, it will cause issues with your hair if you don't. Mm. But, and it'll, you'll have to do that a couple times, a couple weeks. You'll be like, my hair is so greasy, but eventually it won't be. Right. And there's a lot of, um, People of color, the way that they take care of their hair, they wash it about once a week. They sleep with it, you know, in the bonnets or again, I cannot really testify too much to um, Latinx and Hispanic because I am almost embarrassed to admit I don't have too, too many friends. The only one I do put her hair in a ponytail every day, but it still looked great. (laughs) But um and the way that they treat their hair, they're not putting heat on it and straightening it all the time. And it really just, it helps the hair be healthier and way more beautiful than my stringy white girl highlight hair. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that I think generally most like Latinx folks have like thick curly hair probably. And, Mm -hmm. you know, with curls, there's a whole different level of hair care, too, more than what people with straight hair do. Like, lots of deep conditioning, satin pillowcases, all that Extra moisture, don't ever brush it. Oh, yeah. It took me- (laughs) Don't brush it sometimes, but don't brush it when it's dry. Right. I had a perm for a little while. Big learning curve. Big learning curve. Oh, I remember when you had that perm. It was cute, but it was so expensive. It did. It was. It was super cute. It's like $300 just for the perm. Oh, girl, you got overcharged, but we'll talk about that. <laughs> okay, back to Mendez. <laughs> so, yes, sorry. No, 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 no. Um, so, yeah, they were told they had to go to the Mexican school. So the next year, Gonzalo decided that enough was enough. He told he was told by a friend to look at lawyer David Marcus, who had previously won two other segregation cases against Mexicans in L.A. Together, the two reached out to an organization that fought for Mexican-Americans for help, but were rejected. Silvio recounts one night when her father came home crying and asked his wife why they couldn't why they wouldn't help them. To which Felicitas responded, we have the money, let's just do it ourselves. So then Gonzalo began reaching out to other families in other counties, and together they filed the lawsuit Mendez versus Westminster, uh, Westminster School District of Orange County. So they, I'm so sorry to interject, just a quick question. So they were well off. They were not even like, you know, poor. They were, yeah. I mean- Rich enough to afford lawyers. Yeah, and part of that was because they um, they got that uh, ranch from the other family okay. because then yeah. Gonzalo owned his own land, and then also this other one. He was able. He was a successful vegetable farmer, and they did have enough money to pay for the trial. You know, which oh wow, is, mm-hmm. dang! And they paid almost exclusively for everything. The other families didn't pay for for anything. Gonzalo and Felicitas also paid the other families like themselves so that way they could afford to take a day off from work to testify and to attend the trial. That is incredible. Okay, so wow. Good good for them. Good for them. Yes, yes. They were well off at the time, um, which was fortunate. And so 
they decided since they had the money that they were just going to do it by themselves. They weren't backed by any organizations, just them, their the other families, and this lawyer. Gonzalo said during the trial, I will rot in jail before I see my child go back to that school. I own property here in Santa Ana, and I have got a business here, and I don't see why my child can't have the same opportunity as the rest of them have. While Gonzalo worked with the other families and his lawyer, Felicitas, the wife, took charge of all 40 acres of the farm, countless workers, and her home. So yes. she, mm-hmm, So she, like... It seemed like they had a very uh, balanced relationship. Like it wasn't just Gonzalez worked and Felicitas like took care of the home. She decided like that she would take care of the home stuff so that way he could do the lawsuit. Like it was her idea, I'm pretty sure. Ooh, and I wonder if they're still married. I bet they are. I think, or I think they're both dead. But I believe oh. that they were married until they died. Until they died. Okay. Mm-hmm. Strong foundation, good yes. relationship. yes. And like I said, they had multiple workers and she was like handling all of their paychecks, all the financials. Like she was kicking ass A at true home. Queen. While we you- yes, yes, absolutely. So during the trial, Mendez, like I said earlier, paid almost exclusively for everything and paid the other families so they could take a, take a day off from work and testify and attend the trial. From history.com. In the Mendez case, attorney David Marcus saw an opportunity to defeat segregation in California for all students of color, including Asian Americans and Native Americans. He called a number of powerful witnesses to the stand, including Mexican American school children who testified to the poor conditions in their schools and social scientists who provided evidence on how feelings of inferiority inferiority negatively impacted learning and development. Yes. One of the arguments was that the Mexican kids couldn't speak English. And then so the 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 lawyer on the Mendez side, David Marcus, like brought Mexican kids up to the stand who were speaking like perfect English. I was going to say one thing that I loved, I read a little bit, a quote from essentially, you know, the same argument was, Segregation results in feelings of inferiority among Mexican-American children that could undermine their ability to be productive Americans. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I mean, they were basically saying, you're, by discriminating, you're, you're going to breed resentment in them for even wanting to be American. And I think that speaks volumes. I mean, we're supposed to be the country of opportunity, you know, where anyone can come. We're the melting pot. And yet, when we get people of color, we treat them like shit. (laughs) Right, exactly. And it's like, that's what makes this country, like you said, what I think like the American ideal is, is the fact that there's so many people from all different parts of the world and we all contribute and we all bring our pasts and our histories and our cultures here. But whenever... And like you said, with Taco Tuesday, like we love to Mm -hmm. take the parts of those cultures that we do like, but then when they don't speak English, we're like, oh, you're dirty and you have lice in your hair. Yeah. And, you know, I read something once that I always really, it resonated with me, I guess you would say. And it was, anytime you hear someone speaking broken English, you need to remember they're speaking, they already speak a whole nother language that you don't. Right. So, you know, I'm like, man, they're already doing better than me. Shoot. 
Exactly. It's like we who speak like fluent English pretty much only know one language. In most other countries, people speak more than one language like all the time. Mm -hmm. And linguists will tell you that our language is the hardest to learn. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's ridiculous. And yeah, exactly. So broken English is better than... Yeah, no, what you said. You said it. <laughs> I'm not going to reinterpret that. <laughs> I know it took me a second. I was like, blah, blah, blah. well, that's just like the American citizenship test. You know, we want to be proud to be like, you know, American citizens. And like, I'm sorry, I have looked that up. I couldn't pass that test. Shoot. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I can't respect the we... Constitution. <laughs> right. It's it's nuts, absolutely. And especially the way that we treat Mexican Americans is just who, or even who just do all that work Mexicans. that we don't yeah. want to do in the orange groves. Yes. And in like uh butcher places and in factories and cleaning and janitors, like all that stuff that we don't want to do or that we don't want to pay people a living wage to do, we just put it on yes. brown people. Yes, and that's that's actually it, is that we would do those things, but we're not getting uh, what I like to call the white people price. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so when someone says, well, we'll pay you minimum wage to work 14 hours a day in this orange grove, and we're like, I deserve more than that. And, you know, immigrants are grateful to make any money and work twice as hard, and people exploit that because they know that their cultures encourage working hard and I mean, it's so funny. I don't want to get super duper into politics, but you know that whole conservative pull yourself up Girl, by your boots. This is a political drops? podcast. You're right. You're right. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm a liberal. I'm a bleeding heart liberal. I'm not sorry. But, um, you know, that whole conservative Republican pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can make it work. I don't know hardly any white people who have the drive and ambition to actually do that, but. All the immigrants do. I've never met mm-hmm. a single person who has immigrated to this country who was lazy. But I have met a lot of lazy white people who were born in America who think that they should just have things handed to them. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I'm born here. That means I'm better than you. Whereas somebody who like potentially crossed like miles and miles of desert and had to be smuggled into the country and had to take all these tests and learn another language and live in poverty, like, Those people are working hard and they deserve to live in America. And then also to your point that you mentioned earlier about the living wage and how white people won't work for like the same as some other folks. So the other thing, too, is that if somebody is an illegal Mm -hmm. immigrant, if somebody is, you know, under the table being paid, they can be paid less. They still they can pay be taxes. paid less than, yeah, they pay taxes still. And then they are paid less than minimum wage because the employer knows that the employee can't sue them because they're illegal. I read, uh, back to our Mendez case. Yes. I read a lot of the, or a fair amount of the trial transcript and found some Ooh. disgusting quotes from the superintendent of the Garden Grove School District, James L. Kent. And he said so many horrific things, including but not limited to the fact that even if a Latino child had the exact same academic qualifications as a white child, that he, Kent would never allow them to enroll in a white school. That Mexican children must 
quote, be taught manners, they must be taught cleanliness, they must be taught manners, which ordinarily do not come out of the home. He said that on the stand. I wish you could see my face. (laughs) It gets worse. In regards to learning, he said, again, all of these were in the trial transcript. So he was really out there on the courtroom being like, I'm a shitty person. Wait. In regards to learning, he said that if we put them in with our white children, they cannot go at the same rate of speed. Therefore, they are lost. And that we usually find them retarded. When (gasps) mm -hmm. When asked what other respects are the children... What other respects are the children of Mexican descent inferior to the other children of your district? Kent said, in their economic outlook, in their clothing, in their ability to take part in activities in school. And then a few lines later, uh, Mr. Marcus, which was the Mendez lawyer, do you believe that all whites are superior to Mexicans in the respects and in the details that you have mentioned here? Mr. Kent, yes. Furthermore, David Marcus, the lawyer representing Mendez, found a thesis written by James L. Kent in the 1940s that was evidence of his racist ideologies. In his thesis, Kent says Mexicans should be separated like pigs in a pig pen and that they had lice and all kinds of diseases. So he has this entire manuscript that he published of him being racist. <laughs> and this is the superintendent of schools. I can't. I can't. He's a modern day proud boy. He is. And he's saying this all on the stand. All on record. Non-apologetic. So not backtracking. I was going to say, it's not even like when you call people out and they're like, I didn't mean to be racist. I mean, he was straight up like, I am racist and proud. Like, yeah. that is just... I just can't imagine. I mean, I guess racists delude themselves into thinking that they're not wrong, but I just can't imagine being that wrong and that confident in it. Like, right? Wanting and here's the thing is that they could get away with it at the time, and still to an extent today because they're white. Is that when America was great? Is that what we were talking about? We making America great? The the greatest generation, right? Yeah. Also from history.com. This case was heard in 1946 by federal district judge Paul McCormick, who delivered the landmark ruling that segregation of Mexican-Americans was not only unenforceable under California law, but that it violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. There we go. A paramount requisite in the American system of public education is social equality, wrote Judge McCormick. It must be open to all children by unified school association, regardless of lineage. So that judge ruled in favor of Mendez and in favor of integrating schools. Man, why can't we get guys like that on the Supreme Court? I know. Immediately after the verdict, though... The school they appealed. district, they appealed, they filed an appeal, you and know the case they was brought to the ninth, <laughs> the ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco. The appeal is what gained national attention, and organizations including the NAACP, the League of Latin American Citizens, the Japanese American Citizens League, and the World Jewish Congress all threw in their support. The appeal was rejected 
but not because the school district was violating anyone's 14th Amendment rights, but rather because there were no official laws in place that legally supported segregation. Like I mentioned at the beginning, Jim Crow in the South was like Mm -hmm. legal on paper. You know the South read that and they were like, oh shit, we better get some laws passed so we could be racist legally. Right, but in the Southwest at this time, there was no like official laws that said that segregation was legal. That's just so crazy to me. The judge was like, it's not that you're wrong. Right. It's that legally you don't have a leg to stand on. Mm -hmm. So they... Uh, rejected the appeal, like we said, because there weren't any official laws supporting it. Instead of passing new segregation laws, the California governor, your boy Earl Warren, did exactly the opposite. He decided to outlaw all forms of segregation in the state. And then seven years later, Warren would be the chief justice in the Supreme Court when it heard Brown versus Board where it was ruled that segregation in public schools all over the country was unconstitutional. That's right. He said, I've seen this shit before. Mm-hmm. Striking mm-hmm. it down. Absolutely. So after Sylvia graduated, or after all of this, Sylvia graduated college, she became a nurse, and she retired to take care of her ailing mother. It was at this mm-hmm. point that her mother told her, Uh, Sylvia says, someone had to go out there and talk about this story. This is the history of the United States. You have to go out there and start talking about these brave Latinos, how they stood up against the establishment and fought and how they won and how California was the first state to be integrated. The history of California cannot be forgotten. And we did it. We fought and we won. And Sylvia took up the mantle and then began speaking about her family's case for the next 25 years. And still, I mean, she's still alive. In 2002, a documentary about the case that I mentioned earlier, Mendez versus Westminster for All the Children or Para Todos los Niños, received a Golden Mike Award and an Emmy. It's also on YouTube for free. It's only like 30 minutes long. In 2004... We love free content. Mm-hmm. And it's free because the lady who made it posted it on YouTube. It's not like a bootleg. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, OG. Oh, yeah, and she has a Make America Gay Again hat and stuff like that. It's really cute. Uh, <laughs> um, she <laughs> met... Uh, Sylvia met with George W. Bush, who told her story at the White House uh, during Hispanic Heritage Month. And in 2007, a stamp was made by the USPS in honor of the landmark case. Furthermore, two schools in Los Angeles were named after her family. Mm -hmm. And perhaps most special of all, in 2011, Obama awarded Sylvia the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest honor a civilian can earn. Sylvia told the United States Hispanic Leadership Institute, I was crying because finally... Someone had realized what my parents had done. That Medal of Freedom was all about the fight that the five families and my parents and how they stood up against the establishment and how they fought and how they never even got a gracias, Gonzalo, gracias, Ramirez, gracias, Guzman, gracias, Palomino, for what they had done. And there it was, finally being given to us, the Medal of Freedom, showing them that they had done the right thing. And who did it take to give that Medal of Freedom? A person of color. Mm-hmm. 
She also tells them, we can fight bigotry. We can fight. We can fight injustice. We can fight anything that's coming and hurled at us because if we all unite, everybody will join you. Sylvia continues to speak out and tell the story of her case. What an incredible story to tell. I mean, it's so inspirational on so many levels. Like, not only is the fact that it was, you know, the first state that was integrated schools, like that in and of itself is so inspirational, but also the story of her parents working hard from nothing and moving to the United States. And then the fact that they worked with all these other families and they didn't have anything going for them, like with any of organizations behind them and they still fought and they still won, but it was still overlooked. And again, not that long ago, not that long ago. It was, uh, 46, I think, that is one of the days. Oh, my God. That's just so crazy when you think about that, that the most horrible and racist people from that time, like, they're still alive. Oh, I think I skipped something at one point. But um, whenever the the lawsuit, whenever Mendez started the lawsuit, the school district was like, hey, your kids can come. It's fine. They can join just dropped the lawsuit and then he rejected it because he wanted to fight for all children, not just his own. A true badass, a king. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's big, big dad energy. I love that. (laughs) It is. And it's so inspirational. And then, you know, Felicitas, the mom as well, Mm -hmm. taking over the family business and the house and the farm. And that's hard work too. Yeah. And you know, she wasn't just, you know, sitting there in the shade drinking juice. You know, she was out there working. I mean, I'm sure she was. That's just. Again, like you said, it's a testament to immigrants. It's a testament to anybody who doesn't speak English as their first language because, you know, they didn't and they grew up speaking both English and Spanish in their household. It just goes to show that there's so much beauty and power and strength in the Hispanic and Latinx community. And it's just so often overlooked. And that is the story of Mendez versus Westminster and a little bit about civil rights activist Sylvia Mendez. So as always, you can find all of the sources for this episode in the description below. If you have any future episode suggestions or just want to stay updated, you can follow me at facebook.com slash letsbebetterpod or on Instagram at letsbebetterpod or you can email me at letsbebetterpod at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it five stars. It really helps me out. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next week. And thank you, Emily, for joining us. Yes, anytime. Okay, bye.